0: Okay, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. We're going to find our way there. Time has gotten away from us tonight. It's 8 o'clock. So I'll do, I'll do my best to be concise and to the point... And anointed, and full of the oracle of the Lord, and um, no. <laughs> God help. <laughs> so but now we better pray after I just said all that. Lord, I'm asking in Jesus' name, help this weak little fellow to preach right. <laughs> I'm asking, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Open our eyes to hear what the word of the Lord is tonight. Lord, I'm asking, would you allow me to speak clearly and articulate according to your will by your spirit? Holy Spirit, you're the teacher, come. Instruct us tonight. We give you thanks. We love you, Spirit of God. We love you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Have your way in this place. In the name of Jesus, everybody that agreed said amen. Okay, good. Last week, uh, we preached a message. We've been, we've been along the subject of meekness and humility. And last week, we tied it in with the events uh, of the hurricane and, and talked about humility in, in the time of judgment or in judgment. And tonight I want to I continue along those lines. And uh, we're going to talk about hope in judgment. And I know that almost sounds like an oxymoron because, you know, you don't think of judgment being a, a time and a place where you can have hope. You th- it's, it's devastating. And, as you know, we have uh, folks here tonight who are survivors of this, this uh, hurricane in, in the Gulf. And they could tell you way better than I could just the, the sense of loss and devastation you feel when things are are totally uh, going to upheaval in your life like that. But biblically, there's a lot uh, that points us to this, that we can have absolute hope even in, in the place of judgment. And so I think it's important that our hearts are instructed with this reality. I want to give a little uh, review from last week. We talked about what this word judgment means, And uh, it's used bunches in the New Testament. The main one, the main Greek word that's used is uh, K-R-I-S-I-S, crisis. It's where we get the word crisis. And it's that word and another word, crema, K-R-I-M-A, if you're Greek or whatever. If you're Greek, you're probably laughing right now because I got that totally wrong the way I said it. But those are the two main words that are used in the New Testament that describe judgment. And what they what they really mean are a decision or a decree. Um, when we hear the word judgment, we think of something that is pretty much negative. We always think, you know the judgment of God, and it's a negative uh, reality. Uh, as far as uh, humans are concerned. But I want to tell you this, that when the when the, the word judgment appears in the New Testament, that word simply means it's a decision from God. God is acting with a the decision. There can be positive as we perceive it uh, decisions and negative as we perceive it decisions. Now God, whenever God makes a decision, He always perceives it as positive. He, ne- he never does a judgment and goes, oh, that was a bad one. No, He always perceives His judgments and his decrees as perfect 100% of the time and our God uh, revelation 4 tells us our God is upon the throne and here's the thing when the king is on the throne he is making judgments. And I believe it's the reality in this age that our God is a God seated upon the throne who is actively involved in the affairs of of human life. He's actively involved in our affairs. And he is all the time making decrees and making judgments that affect, uh, I mean, just thousands and millions, billions of features in this realm. God is a God who is continually enacting decrees in this realm. And so when we think of the judgment of God, I want us to, we, we I, th- I the more I've, I've just gotten into this whole subject and just begin to pray over it. And I think we need a whole paradigm shift on what judgment is. I really do. I think that the way that, uh, we in general think about, uh, God moving in judgment, we immediately go, Ooh, Al, but I don't think the Lord wants his bride to think, Oh no, about judgment. I think he wants his bride to have a whole different posture. Now, of course, because uh, judgment could have um, uh, pressing effects in this life, it can cause us to look at the challenges that we uh, experience in this life and say, sort of like, "ouch" to that in a big way. But if we are having a perspective that that uh, if we're having a perspective in us that governs the way that we're perceiving these things, that is uh, heaven's perspective, we will look at this idea of judgment completely differently. Completely differently, and so that's what we found last week. The judgment is God's decision; it's decree of action. It's not solely a negative thing in God's mind. It's always positive, and here's why: because a hundred percent of the time, when God moves in judgment, He is judging, uh, and it's and it's sort of a, a decree of uh, of negativity, if you want to think of it that way. And it's it's always against darkness. God is always moving against darkness, always moving against the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of God, a hundred percent of the time. And so in that every judgment of God is good. Every judgment of God is good. And so we, we, it's hard for us because, and I'll speak for myself then, it's hard for me because a hundred percent of my life, I have tried to insulate myself from that, which would cause pain or pressure. I'm the littlest of three brothers And I got whooped on most of my life I got highly acquainted With pain and pressure Just from being you know Five and six years younger than my older two brothers I mean every day was a judgment from my brothers Upon my life Pain and pressure And um, And so I learned how to try to insulate myself From anything that would be challenging If the brothers are there You walk around the house and go in the back door So you don't get beat on that day and, I, and I, I just would say I, have, I adapted, I think many in our Western culture have adapted a lifestyle that says, I want the least amount of challenges, I want the least amount of pressures, I want the least amount of pain and turmoil in my life, and, and what we've actually done is identified success as that which has no pain and no challenge, and the greatest amount of ease, and we think of that as success. And I think that's completely not the... the the point in this life. I don't think God's idea for you in this life is to make you co- totally uh, living on in, in, in ease as it relates to no pain and no pressure. His yoke is easy and his burden is light in that he will enable you to go through pain and pressure. But our theology is sort of like this. We think this, that Christ suffered so that we don't have to. But I would say the biblical mentality would be this, that Christ suffered so we're able to. So I'm sort of pounding away here. I'm kind of making more points than you're saying amen, but that's okay. Thanks. So the idea is that I don't think the point... Of this age is that we would insulate ourselves from anything would be challenging. I think the point is, he wants to take us through the challenges because he wants to lop off that which is in our life that is is unlike him and he wants to form us and bring us into this, the image of his son, that we could be a worthy partner for his son because at the end of the day, guess what? This thing is about a a marriage that God is bringing us to and he is not going to marry his perfect son to someone that doesn't look or act anything like him. And he uses this context, and that's what I'm trying to get to. He uses a context in this life to shape us into one that is worthy to partner with his son for eternity. And part of that uh, has to do with correction. Part of it is the discipline of God, which we know is because of love. But some of it has to do with suffering at times. 1 Peter 4, and we'll probably read the verse later, but it says, If you suffer according to the will of God, and most people don't even know that verse is in the Bible... But if you suffer according to the will of God, commit your ways to Him. It's powerful. I remember one young lady one time she said to me, That's not God. And I go, How do you know that's not God? She goes, Because I don't want to do it. And I said, "Uh Uh-huh. Because God, that's really not the God doesn't care if you want to do it or not. He loves you and he wants to partner with you forever and he's going to do what he needs to do in your life to make you one that he can join himself to. That's his point. Whether you whether you and your unrenewed mind like or don't like what he's asking you to do really isn't his issue. He's just like, you know, you may not like it, but I love you, so I'll do whatever I need to do in you so I can have you. I want you. Okay. So that was kind of last week's message. So this week I want to we're going to We'll land in Revelation 19. I want to bring us up to speed on a few things. Um, and this is good for our staff. And then those are like to come on to hope That's good, good. for you too. But Wednesday, the Lord kind of, he kind of, um, he came on me pretty powerfully in one of our prayer meetings, and I had I had a weird little morning uh, of email. You know how you get random email? I don't know if you get it. I get lots of random email all the time. But all of a sudden, I got three emails in a row, three emails in a row, they were all interrelated. It was like, poof, poof, poof. and I got this, I had this prophetic swirl coming off my email inbox. That sounds weird, but it was. And so one of them was a prophetic word that uh, said it was a biblical explanation of God's judgment against sin, and it discussed uh, debauchery and perversion, and it discussed some of the things that um, the, the, the city leaders, even in New Orleans, had opened themselves to and invited. And it, it used a biblical um, uh, attitude to discuss God's activity against darkness. And I said, huh, that's interesting. And then the next one I got was an email that said that the California state legislator had stayed up in a late-night session uh, changing the wording in their law uh, that talked about marriage uh, between—they changed the wording in a late-night session. They got this vote passed 41 to 36, and it changed the, the wording in marriage law between a man and a woman to between two persons so that it could could support uh, the homosexual agenda. And at the end of it, it said that the only way that that will will not go into law is if the governor vetoed it. And then later on in the week, we ended up getting word that Schwarzenegger's office actually said he was going to veto it. I was like, thank God. And then the other one I got was a a word from a prophetic minister who said that there were four regions that God was going to purify... And he named a Twin Cities region, and he named uh, CNN. And I didn't put it together when I read the thing. I just said, CNN, huh? Yeah, news media. And it really talked about the media. Well, as we came out of, as I came out of this little, I mean, I was like, bang, bang, bang. I came out of that, and I'm over there in the back, and I'm, I'm just getting like, I'm just getting... I have a certain sense. It's like butterflies in my stomach, but it's not. I, I, but the Lord came on me, and the thing is swirling on me. The presence of the Lord is on me strong. And I begin to tremble and get, uh, it feels like you're nervous, but you're not. And, I, and I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? What's happening? And I get, I get profoundly impacted that whether it's four regions or 40 regions really isn't the point to me at this point. But that Atlanta is on the short list from the Lord. And so I just, in kindness and in humility and with a heart to intercede and pray, I want to just proclaim that I believe Atlanta is on God's short list. And that God is going to move in Atlanta in the way that he sees necessary to bring about the greatest number of people that will turn themselves to him in voluntary love. And that could be a judgment event. And so I came up to the prayer mic, and I stopped the prayer meeting, and I began to say a few things, and we began to pray. And as we did, the intercession was real strong, and several went into travail and weeping and wailing. And I ended up getting an, uh, an email on the backside of that, some confirming things that confirmed that. But it, it, it led me to, to see that—I uh, said this last week, and I believe in, that this is, this is accurate. And, and again, I don't say this with, oh, I'm the guy that's got the answer, da-da-da-da-da. I say this with humility and a broken heart. But I believe that we're living in the land of the judgment of the Lord. We're living in a season of time. And this is what I really felt like the Lord was saying, if I can capture, capture it in a phrase. We're living in a season of time where God's judgment is accelerated in our nation. And so that demands a response. That doesn't. That's not one of those you go home and you go, wow, it's a good message, honey. What's, what's on TV tonight? But I think that there's, I think that the Lord is placing a demand and gonna, it's going to heighten in the days ahead. And the, the days ahead, I mean, I don't put any time frames on it. it might be it could be a, a three months or three years or 15 years. I'm not sure. But I have a real strong uh, impression that there is an, a, an acceleration of God's judgment we're going to see in America. It's going to hit in multiple places. There is a real weird swirl going on with prophetic voices across the nation. I'm, I'm aware of several. I just, I'm aware of several different things going on. I'm not going to go into those things, but there's a real weird prophetic swirl as it relates to judgment. I um, was on the phone call on a phone call just prior to this meeting tonight, and I would say three different. I know of for sure three different groups, so us being one, around the country that went into strong, severe intercession this last two weeks as it related to mercy and judgment. And and undoubtedly, there's hundreds that are in the same place. And so I'm in sobriety trying to bring a word to us that there's a reality of this. God's judgments are in our land, and they're coming. They really, really are, beloved. And it's not something that I think that we need to go, you know, into depression over. And, and, And here's why. Because our our majority context of thinking of judgment, we think negative, 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 but God goes, there is mercy coming as a result of this. So I want to get into a little of this. Revelation 19, let's look at this. We may just go a little bit late tonight. You just hang with me because I want to get a few of these things out. Connie, and, and then if you're the only one, you and I, I'll just preach to you. She gave me the green light. John and John and Connie. Y'all are awesome. I owe you dinner or coffee or something. Y'all are awesome. Okay, Revelation 19. Uh, verse 10. I wanna I wanna read a verse that's sort of familiar, that's the phrase is taken. And used a lot. It's out of context most of the time. And I want to contextualize it for us. In verse 10 it says, And I fell. This is John speaking. He says, I fell at his feet. He's speaking about an angel to worship him. And he said, But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren of the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And here's the phrase that we've heard preached on several times. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so, I want to um, talk about what that is, what he's, what's he saying there. Uh, the testimony of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy, it's this, it's, the, th- uh, uh, the short version is, it's the thing that's on Jesus' heart. When the guy speaks with the prophetic spirit upon him, he's speaking that word which is upon the heart of the Lord Jesus. He's, he is uh, speaking with a, an earthly voice what the, the heavenly voice is saying. So he's in agreement and he's speaking forth what the Lord's testimony is. So the spirit of prophecy is testifying of what Jesus is thinking and saying. Now, we can make it about getting information, beloved, but the prophetic spirit is not so much about just getting information. You can go to any uh, you know, false God-worshiping person that's connected into the spirit realm. They can get you information and it'll be real information. You know, there's a guy on TV, he's channeling of the Spirit, and he, and, he, and he gets the guy's information. And, and it's real information, it just comes from demons. That's real. It's not the spirit of prophecy, though. It's a false thing. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it is the thoughts and the feelings from the heart of God. And the guy that's worshiping the false god, he cannot convey the spirit that the Lord is feeling. He can't convey the emotions of God, the thoughts of God, and speak with authority from uh, the the throne in heaven what God is saying and God is feeling about a situation. The spirit of prophecy, and, and I'm giving a real basic thing, but the spirit of prophecy conveys the emotions that are on the heart of God. And so we have a lot of, that get information in, in the church, but I would I would call us and challenge us to be people that find out what's he thinking, what's he feeling, and before we decree and declare a thing that we would know the heart of Jesus concerning the matter. And so let me give you a little contextual uh, information on this. John is in chapter 19 of a 22-chapter experience with God where he's actually gone through a door in heaven. He's shocked because he's seen dramatic uh, events of the judgment of God. He's seen the wrath of God poured upon the planet. He's seen uh, more angels than you can imagine. The Bible says an innumerable company of angels. He's seen a heavenly chorus. He's seen beauty and power and sight and smell and, and, and sound and fragrance and things beyond his wildest imagination. And he gets to chapter uh, 17 and the angel says, hey, let me show you Babylon. Let me show you the destruction of this harlot system. Let me show you how that happens. And so 17 and 18, you can't understand 19 and what he ha- what happens to John there if you don't know 17 and 18. So the angel takes him in and says, watch this. And in 17, we get a few features on the Antichrist. We get the destruction of Babylon. In 18, we get real specific information about this negative world system that God brings full judgment against in the kingdom of darkness. And in the 19, we have saints rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of this negative world system, Babylon. Babylon. Babylon, and then what we have is the emergence of a ready bride in verse 7 of chapter 19. And John, having been through this massive prophetic experience, is now staring and looking at Jesus' bride and his desire for for the church uh, and, and he's seeing with, with his eyes, it's something he understood, but he's seeing with his eyes this, the culmination of God's mission for mankind in this age. He is seeing the, the, the Lord Jesus, the God man, getting ready to partner with humankind forever in eternal unity. He's seeing the ready bride for real. He's seeing the, the, the clothing and white garments. He's seeing the righteous acts upon the people of God. And he's seeing the bride poised and ready for unison unity with God himself. And it shocks him. Babylon's judge. See, here's the deal. God has a plan for humankind. We have a good God. His whole plan is Matthew 22.1. What is he trying to do? He's trying to raise up. He's trying to arrange a marriage for his good son. The kingdom of heaven, that's Matthew 22, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a a king who arranged a marriage for his son. God is arranging a marriage. He's working the context of human affairs to get a people out of the earth that will partner with his son. that He'll marry to his son for real. And so Satan has a plan, and his plan is to do this, raise up a harlot that the world would go and join itself to and become part of that system. God has a plan to raise up a bride, while Satan has a plan to raise up a harlot. And what they see in 17 and 18, what John sees in this amazing vision is the judgment against Satan's mission statement and the the fruition of God's mission statement. And John is shocked to the core. He's alive. He's going, I can't, what am I seeing? The ready bride and the God-man Christ Jesus getting ready to join himself to humankind forever. John loses his mind. I mean, the wheels come off and he bows down and begins to worship an angel. I mean, he's been through a whole lot of experience there, but he just, I got to worship somebody and you're it. I mean, he just bows down. Because he's seeing in 3D the culmination of God's plan for humankind in this age. It shocks and it stuns him. And so, the angel goes, look. <laughs> You're excited, I'm excited, but don't worship me or we're both in trouble. Stop. <laughs> Just stop, for real. Worship God. And then he goes, he goes, I'm of your fellow brother. He goes, I've got the testimony of the same Jesus that you have to tell. He goes, I'm of your, I, you and I are the same level, dude. Stop. And then he goes, and the spirit of prophecy, what, what, he goes, here's the reason why that phrase comes in. He goes, what's affecting you right now is the revelation of what's on the heart of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy is what's affecting you so deeply. And it's the testimony of Christ Jesus. It's what's on his mind and what's on his heart. And so here's what I want to say to you is this. Is when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and speaks with the word of God by the spirit of prophecy, it's always through the lens of the mission statement that's in God's mind. It's in the context of this. God has a purpose. He's trying to ready a bride for his son. And when the prophetic word comes and says judgment will come on this region, it's because God is working a context in that place that will cause men to get their hands off of darkness and get their hands onto God. Come on, somebody! That absolutely should completely change the way that we believe about the judgment of God. I was talking to a pastor this week, and and, he, and he, man, I, I was I was like, when he said it, it just sent chills up and down my spine. You know, I go, he and I were talking about the whole issue of judgment and and things happening, and and what about the you know some Christians die. He goes. He goes, all that means to me is that God needs righteous blood in the ground so he can produce a harvest from that place. I went, I mean, yeah, I I mean, I had chills. I said, oh my goodness. Great is the mystery of godliness. I mean, God knows what he's up to. And so I want to call us to be a people that while we shudder at the majesty of our God and while we... We, we stand in awe at his judgments and stand in awe at the, the workings of God in the earth and, 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 and absolutely have a heart of mercy and a heart of compassion. And when, when devastation and, and cataclysmic events happen, we go, I mean, we say a big owl and we mourn and weep with those who are experiencing him firsthand. And, and I'm going to tell you, I really, guys, get ready. Atlantic needs to get ready. I just, ah. Oh. And we, we partner in, in, in emotion with those that are experiencing in this age and, and, uh, and experiencing firsthand in this life. But we must look into the reality of this. God is readying a bride. He knows better than we do. And God will always work by this spirit that was upon John, that spirit of prophecy. It's testimony of Christ's heart that's this. that He loves people and he's trying to get the most, the greatest number of people to become voluntary lovers. He knows how to do it. He'll do it this way. He will enact the least severe measures possible in order to get people to turn from darkness and turn to him and get the greatest number of voluntary lovers. That's how he operates. He is not. He is, I mean, at some level concerned with our comfort in this life, but not anywhere near as concerned about it as we are. He really isn't. And I just referenced Luke 21 with that. God goes, look, they're going to hate you. Everybody's going to hate you from all over the world. They're going to hate you. He goes, but don't worry. Trust in me. He goes, people's families will even turn against them. He goes, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. And he goes, a couple of you are going to die. And I go, um, what does that mean? Like if... If I die, my hair hurts. I mean, as far as I can tell. That's not... I don't like that. He goes, the point isn't whether your comfort in this life is uninterrupted. The point is whether you are secure eternally. Because you will by no means be lost. And I I tell you, I it's, you know... It's very easy for me to stand here and say these things with with this boldness when I haven't experienced much suffering in my life. But I want to tell you that I'm in the place of intercession right now in prayer, and I'm saying, God, ready my heart to be unoffended in love at the pressings of God on my life and on my community because I'm convinced that we have signed up to be pressed into making a choice. Atlanta is one of the top five cities for homosexual activity in our nation. It's way up on the abortion charts, way up. We need to be a people that lets the reality of this sink in. God has got a plan for Atlanta, Georgia. It includes massive levels of mercy. And in my mind, mercy equals absolute revival. And God will stop at nothing to see his agenda enacted. And I, it will, it will not surprise, I'm trying to get my mind to the place where it will not surprise me if some sort of thing hits us. And I'm praying for God's mercy even in the place of judgment that, hey God, and he goes, he goes, I will absolutely do the least amount necessary to see the most number, the greatest number turn to me. I want to partner with his heart and say, All your ways are just and true. Just and true are all your ways. You are good from the beginning to the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega, and you are good. Everything you do is good. I want my heart to align with that. So I'm trying to get around what it looks like. I'm trying to recognize the, the movings of the heart of God, the testimony of Jesus. His testimony is this. He goes, I love people. I delight in mercy. Micah 7:18 says this that God delights in mercy. James 2 13, we know it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our God is a God who loves mercy, and He will not. I'm telling you, he will not stop at, at wrapping the hand. He will wrap the hand hard enough so it will grope for him. Mercy. That's mercy. I was looking at Revelation 4. We're hitting it this week in our class. and a little selfless class promotion, Revelation class Tuesday nights. We're going to hit it this week in our class, but Revelation 4, we're going to talk about the throne of God. I want to give it just a little on this, and then we'll pray. But Revelation 4, it says this, that in verse 3, it says, He who sat upon that throne, he, the, he was there, he was like a jasper and a sardius stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. He who sat on the throne it was like a jasper and a sardius stone, and in appearance... Around the throne, there was a rainbow like an emerald. Now, the jasper is very unique. The jasper is a a diamond-like, beautiful. The ancient jasper is a beautiful stone, like like a diamond, gl- glowing with amazing beauty. And the jasper is unique in scripture because it appears on the on the breastplate of the the high priest in the old covenant. It is it's a the first stone in the foundation of the New Jerusalem. It's what the walls are made of in the New Jerusalem. And it's the same as the light that emits from the New Jerusalem. And the point is that the New Jerusalem is the bride. And the foundation, the walls, and what's coming off the bride is the very substance of God. He clothes us with His own beauty. And the jasper is, it's radiant, glorious, beautiful. It speaks of God's purity or God's righteousness. Righteousness, in my mind, is the living out of holiness, of beautiful holiness. The beauty of holiness, it manifests in righteous acts. So the the jasper emanating from the being of God is God's righteousness. The sardius is red, ruby red, fiery red. It's it's also a a stone that appears on the high priest's uh, uh, breastplate. And, and the sardius is, uh, speaks of God's passionate zeal and His justice. You've got righteousness and beauty and justice in, in the red sardius. And I started looking at it and I said, That sounds like a verse. Righteousness and justice, foundations of your throne. Psalm 89 verse 14. It says righteousness and justice are the very foundation of his throne. And it's the very colors of that which is emitting from the very being of God. The depths of who he is. The foundation stones of God's throne are righteousness and justice. He will bring justice or judgment against that which hinders love. 100% of that which hinders love will be judged in righteousness and in truth at the end of the age. It's who he is. Darkness will not go unpunished. It will absolutely. He will bring vindication. He is that God. But then there's this other amazing feature about God. Yes, he's a God of beauty and righteousness. The beauty of holiness and purity. He is the God burning in zeal of judgment and justice. He is that God. But he has an emerald rainbow that it says it surrounds the throne. The emerald, we know it's green and green. It's the color of mercy. And the rainbow itself is the, the sign of God's covenant with man of mercy to never destroy the earth again by flood. Isn't that unique? You know what? It's, it's in a funny little, uh, the reference of that little verse. It's Genesis 9-11. Mercy. It's funny little how that works. He does that I like Psalm twenty four seven. If you worship and pray, Psalms twenty four seven, the King of Glory will come in. That's my little pocket one. <laughs> There's no other reason to do night and day prayer. We got Psalm twenty four seven. Okay, Psalms twenty four seven, King of Glory. Okay, okay, I got it. Maybe you didn't, but it's okay. All right, okay, good. Um, so there it is. Mercy, double portion of mercy in the rainbow. And in the green emerald, the throne of righteousness and justice is surrounded with the double portion of mercy. I go, well, that's nice allegory, but what about the... Give me some face value verses that declare that. Well, it's right there in Psalm 89. The very verse that says, the foundation of His throne is righteousness and justice. The very verse... Righteousness and justice, verse 14, Psalm 89. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. It's right there the entire time. I could not believe, when I saw that, it just shocked me. I went, unbelievable. And then Isaiah sixteen five, it says this. It's talking about when Christ establishes his throne on the earth in the the age to come. It says, in mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, this is a a, a future reality. In Jerusalem, in the age to come, Jesus Christ himself will sit on the planet, on a throne, in mercy. They'll have night and day worship going on, which is amazing. They'll really do the harp and bowl thing the right way. It says, in mercy, the throne will be established. And it says, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. The earthly throne will be an exact mirror image of the heavenly throne. It will be surrounded with mercy. What am I trying to? Why am I bringing this up? The point is this: every decree of justice and righteousness that comes forth from the throne has to go through the lens of God's mercy. One hundred percent of the time, beloved, whenever He acts in judgment, whenever He brings a decree, it goes through the veil of God's mercy. I know this: that the days ahead, they, they could get real weird they really could get weird but i want to be one that is unoffended in the revelation of his love and his mercy i want i want to stand in agreement with all of his activity in the earth without offense at god i think the root of offense that we would have against god saying you're not just you're not true you're not right it would be rooted only in pride because we would be one saying you're not allowed to do what you think is best I want to be one that agrees with his judgments. Agrees with the mercy that comes off his throne. Knowing that everything he does is just and true. And every judgment that comes through the throne, from the throne is because he delights in mercy. He's working for mercy. And so the question that I end up with is this. Will we be a people who will partner and agree with God's heart to the place that even devastating circumstances come will we say yes to his judgment believing that his agenda is always good and that even devastation to our systems our ways our comforts and even our lives is because he's bringing about a display of his own mercy I'm telling you, he's looking for people at this point who will be friends. He is is looking for ones that will be friends, that will stand with him in this hour, this most unique hour when the judgments of God are in the land. He's looking for his bride to be friends and stand in agreement with him. I know his ways are good. I know he is destined... Amazing things for our city. The path to get there may not be my way of thinking. It may cause me to suffer. At the end of the day, I believe it's going to work for my greatest good and it's going to continue to make me one that's worthy for his son. Good, let's just stand.